There's a pretty nice view from Mountain Bill. I said Kathleen MacArthur to her friend Judith Wright on a bright summer's day. And I don't know about you, but my greatest fears are that someone will take all this beauty away. So let's fight. Oh, let's fight for it, I say. Battle of Caloundra, a lunch hour theatre script by Kathleen MacArthur. The Battle of Caloundra. The Battle of Caloundra was the title given to life in Caloundra during the war. There was no fighting involved. It was more of a friendly social affair which everyone enjoyed. Well, perhaps not everyone. There would have been some exceptions, like the poet soldier F. B. O'Connell. Camping in the rain. Rain in the tea tree, wind in the gums, high over glasshouse, thunder comes. Blue as the sand, yellow the clay, the world is miserable, gloomy grey. Strain on the drag ropes, bend your backs, the rain will fill the new gun tracks. Your clothes hang heavy with misery, there's more rain coming across the sea. Never a break in sullen skies, the raindrops seep through leaky flies. Nothing to do but suck your thumbs. Wind in the tea tree, rain in the gums. In the first stages of the war in Caloundra, it was thought the only way to perform war properly was by following the script, learnt by the veterans of that other skirmish, which was to dig foxholes and sit in them. The Battle of Caloundra only got into swing after Japan entered the war, and the United States came in on our side. Caloundra was all movement from then onwards, beginning with the evacuations. Evacuations were often meaningless, with some people going east, while others went west, and some south, passing those going north. Anyone going north of Brisbane and its famous Brisbane line was regarded either as brave or foolish, depending on the point of view for in the south that was regarded as the battle zone. Evacuating was the thing to do. It was the done thing at that time, and those who did not evacuate were simply out of fashion. People who evacuated from the coast to the country and later returned often found their empty house had been taken over by one of the services, leaving them without. The demand by the services for accommodation meant the rent shot sky high. It was no different in Caloundra because of its strategic geographical position commanding the entrance to Moreton Bay and the shipping roads into the port of Brisbane. The town had become the headquarters of the supreme commander of the Pacific War, General Douglas MacArthur. The place fairly bristled with activity. First a naval signal station was established on Wickham Point, then an army fire command post was set up in the largest house on Landsborough Terrace to control the electrified minefields in the bay. Ironically, a commando-type raid could so easily have been carried out with a night landing on Moffat Beach, where there were no guns at all. 
Then, with a short walk through the bush, an enemy could have taken Calandra's guns from behind. The commanding officer did not appreciate my thoughts on this. Yes, I was not amused by having that pointed out to me by that silly woman. After all, I am a high-ranking commanding officer and a graduate of the Royal Military College of Duntrue. Morton Bay's electric minefields were monitored on a screen. If anything showed up on the screen, a ship or something more sinister, the officer on duty had simply to press a button to immediately blow it up. This almost happened once, but the duty officer could not make himself press the button. He knew he should, and he knew he would be in trouble if he didn't. Yet he just could not bring himself to do it. He was quick smartly removed from the post, but he really was quite right, for it was an American ship that had decided to take a shortcut, or hadn't read the instructions, or any other reason whatsoever to explain why it had acted so dangerously. Another story worth a giggle was the one about our anti-aircraft battalion lying in wait on the beach with their Bofors guns all lined up. Slowly, a submarine surfaced, and the crew of the sub emerged and trained their binoculars onto the beach. What a dilemma! Instead of shooting at it in an attempt to possibly disable it, if not actually sink it... An officer was to be dispatched to Caboolture or Brisbane or, it is hoped, at least to the nearest telephone. How reassuring to think that our finest military men of the time did not know whether the sub was one of ours or one of theirs. By the time an aircraft appeared overhead, the sub was nowhere to be seen. Even the dullest person in Caloundra could have told them it wasn't one of ours, because we'd watched our submarines coming in and out of the bay, but never without a naval escort. What those Japanese men saw through their binoculars must have convinced them that we were very well protected indeed, with our beaches bristling with guns at the ready, even if our best men were somewhat reluctant to use them when the opportunity arose. Quite out of the blue one day, the naval personnel of Caloundra's signal station began to wear tin helmets and gas masks. We soon realised there was some sort of crisis somewhere. No one was talking, but much concern was being shown for women and children who did not have slit trenches to sit in. There were tank stands to shelter under, and it was known that in the raids on Darwin a tank collected a direct hit. Fortunately, it was left with the stand intact, but that move was not laid down in the Book of Rules. Slit trenches were in and tank stands were not, and women and children were expected to take the advice of service officers and do as they were told, but most emphatically in times of crisis. Even a crisis no one knew anything about. Before long, the public heard the news. The Battle of the Coral Sea had been fought to the east of us, too close for comfort, and Caloundra locals watched as battle-scarred ships passed on their way back to port, HMAS Swan being one of them. Navy ships would appear like a small grey triangle on the horizon, always flashing signals at great speed. It was natural for civilians to think they were reporting warlike events 
and thrilling actions of daring. But the facts were not nearly so romantic. Those flashing lights, when translated, were simply giving a list of provisions the ship was entering port to pick up. Ten dozen eggs, fifty pounds of sausages, a hundred pounds of potatoes, rice, sugar, tea, cigarettes, toilet paper, bread, rum for the other ranks and gin for the officers, and so on and so forth. All the way from the horizon to past the fairway boy. It was nothing more than a grocery order. That's all it was. There was a particular incident concerning cigarettes that stands out in memory. Two girls on Dicky Beach were overheard saying, "Did you hear about those girls who were down on Dicky Beach? No, tell me about it. <gasps> they noticed this large bloated black thing floating on the tide. Really? Yes, they thought it could be a body because they've seen those horror photographs in Life magazine, and you know what they look like. Oh yes, don't I know it? Well, they got close enough and recognised it as an anti-aircraft practice drogue, which had been shot down a few days earlier. Oh, my goodness! Yes, they pulled it up the beach and went to the nearest telephone at Holmes's Dicky Beach store and phoned the battalion headquarters. And what did they say? They told the officer they could have their drogue back in return for two packets of cigarettes. <laughs> Good for them. And did they get them? No, the lousy, mean so-and-sos collected the drogue smartly, but didn't so much as say thank you kindly, let alone hand over any cigarettes. Ah, <sighs> oh, the cheek. During the war, Caloundra had brownouts, not blackouts. It was mostly achieved with brown paper over windows and around lights. Not remembered as particularly inconvenient, neither was it strictly monitored probably because the lighthouse illuminated the whole scene every few seconds. Anyone sitting behind windows produced their own silhouette, which was intriguing when viewed from outside. It brought in the snoopers, like the commanding officer who was curious to know who was being entertained. That man kept his snooping eye on everything within his territory, but it is difficult to imagine what satisfaction he got from it. Life was sometimes reduced to basics, and when a regiment would arrive, the troops were immediately allowed a surf. The men had no bathers, so just wore their baggy underpants as swimming gear. There were no briefs in those days, so with great eagerness they raced into the waves, penises flapping. The lightkeeper's wife on Cape Morton would not have approved. She reported soldiers for swimming in the nude, and on investigation it was found she had to use the powerful lighthouse telescope to see them. Camouflage was another prominent feature of the war. It was everywhere, and some worked long and hard weaving the camouflage nets. Alone on a walk over the sugar bag to visit friends, one member of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force thought it worked all too well. Just before she neared their house, she thought she would do a little wee. Squatting gingerly in the grass, she suddenly realised she was in full view of a manned camouflage jeep. For a moment, she thought the camouflage in her uniform may have saved her, only to realise she had picked a large red hibiscus when passing a garden 
and had pinned it to her shirt. Of major importance to the Battle of Caloundra was, of course, the artillery range, which was responsible for the visits of many hundreds of thousands of servicemen over the years of its operation. Whole army divisions would arrive. Their vehicles and heavy armoury, such as tanks, would rumble through Caloundra day and night on the way to Battery Hill. Understandably, the range was out of bounds to mere civilians who dared not get any closer than Dicky Beach. We were allowed in for special occasions, such as local talent shows or to give concerts. On occasion, invitations were issued to dine in the mess with a visiting regiment in a grand gesture of returning the hospitality the servicemen had received. Overall, though, the artillery range was a rather more serious aspect of the Battle of Caloundra than was the rest of it. When peace, or the imminent prospect of it, brought the abandonment of the artillery range, it was found that within its firing range, just over the wildflower plains and the sand dunes, the beaches were littered with duds, hidden, unexploded shells. An army demolition squad was sent in to clean it up, but many were missed, and still, to this day, they turn up. However, apart from a schoolboy losing an eye, nothing more drastic resulted. The beaches were protected in barbed wire entanglements. Those entanglements did a wonderful job of protecting the beaches by stopping people from tramping up and down the dunes. By the time they had become unnecessary, towards the end of the war, they were removed. The beach had been completely cured of its injury and was in perfect health. The miracle of rehabilitation. Finally, Victory Day came. Newspapers splashed huge headlines. Photographs of Victory celebrations from every capital city. How Caloundra celebrated the end of the war could not have been very impressive when it was not remembered, except for one effort on the part of young Mary Farlow. Mary delivered the morning milk and the newspapers, and on that Victory Day morning, she did so wearing a black silk top hat and flying a large Union Jack. Yet despite those encumbrances, Mary still managed to deliver the milk and the papers on time. After the war, most left and went home, but many came back, some to live here, some just for a regular holiday. A few only visited once on a nostalgic trip many years later, but none of them seemed to forget the Battle of Caloundra. Whenever one mentions that their hometown is Caloundra, the immediate response is... Lovely place, Caloundra. I was there during the war. Did it really matter that our government failed to issue any special medal for those who took part in the Battle of Caloundra? Bless them all, bless them all, the long and the short and the tall. Bless all the sergeants and W.O.1s, bless all the corporals and their blinking sons, cos we're saying goodbye to them all. As back to their billets they crawl You'll get no promotion this side of the ocean So cheer up my lads, bless them all This podcast series was produced by the Sunshine Coast Council Heritage Library with the support of a strategic priority grant from the State Library of Queensland.
This series was produced in 2022 and may not be reproduced for any commercial or non-commercial interest.